As you're taking your seats, you can take your Bible as well and open up to the book of Romans chapter 12. And uh, let me just begin by uh, wishing you a happy new year. It's, uh, it's great to start off a new year, isn't it? I, I love uh, the new year. I love when that calendar kind of ticks past midnight and we get a fresh start. We get a new calendar year. We get to think about all that lies before us, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. And this is a sweet time for us to do that. Now, I need to be honest with you. Um, I have been waiting very patiently to get to Romans chapter 12. And in fact, um, the reason we didn't do a dedicated Christmas series like we often do in the past was because I, I needed to get through Romans 11 so that we could start Romans 12 right now, today. Because if there's ever a, a verse or a section of Scripture you want to look at to re form and rethink your new year and the resolutions maybe that you're making spiritually, this is it. I mean, this is such a key verse. We've often started this Sunday, the first Sunday of the new year, um, with a message series called Resolved. And we've stolen that title and that concept from Jonathan Edwards, arguably the most famous um, theologian and maybe even pastor in American history, and at the young age of 19 years old, this godly young man in 1722, he wrote out for himself 70 resolutions, short, punchy, powerful statements, commitments that would guide the entirety of his life. He would revisit these every single week of his life, reading them over, examining his life, reframing how he was living, and keeping on track with the trajectory that he had set. And all of these resolutions really flow out of the Scriptures. There are two that I think are really relevant for us this morning as we look at Romans chapter 12, and I think you'll see why as we dive into this scripture verse this morning, but let me read these two resolutions. They're resolution number 42 and 43. 42 says this, resolved frequently to renew the dedication of myself to God, which was made at my baptism, which I solemnly renewed when I was received into the communion of the church. I love that frequently to renew the dedication of myself to God. And then right on the heels of that, Resolution 43 says this, resolved never henceforward till I die to act as if I were any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. And if you were to kind of boil down what he's saying in these two resolutions, it's very simple. Jonathan Edwards, like we ought to be, was resolved to live a life committed to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul calls us to here. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul turns a corner. And what he gives to us is really the framework for the Christian life. So whether you're new to the faith or whether you have been in the faith for decades now, this is a helpful way this morning to solemnly 
renew your dedication to the Lord. It's an opportunity for you and for me to resolve to act as if we are not our own, but are entirely and altogether God's. Look at verse 1. That's all we're going to look at this morning. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You could argue that this should be the mission statement of every Christian life. And in fact, that's what I want to argue for you this morning. This is the summation of what it means to live the Christian life faithfully to God. It is to see that your life is supposed to be an act of worship, a sacrifice unto God that is holy and acceptable, that is pleasing to Him. This passage, this verse, is a call to commitment. It's an appeal to be committed. It is a plea to be committed, to be resolved, to let our deep thinking about the gospel that we have been looking at in the previous three chapters in particular lead us to deep living. Paul calls this kind of living a life of worship to the Lord. And so I want to give you just two points this morning from this one verse. I want to show you first that a life of worship requires comprehensive understanding. Again, Paul makes this appeal in the very first half of this verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And I want you to see that, again, this verse really sums up for us essentially what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle who has been given divine authority from God himself, appeals to us, one, on the basis of his authority. And I just want to remind you this morning that as a Christian, you are a person under authority. You are a person who is to come under the authority of God himself, and by extension, the word of God. And so Paul, he is leveraging that authority that has been given to him by God to make an appeal to the followers of Jesus Christ, to the church of Jesus Christ. But notice this, this isn't some kind of a hard-edged command. This is a, a command with authority that flows with a heart of affection. He appeals to them as brothers. Did you catch that? He sees them as family. We're in this together. You're my brothers and sisters, and because I love you and I care for you and I want what's best for you, I am appealing to you. There is this urging and exhorting now to live out, here's what you have to see, the implications of what he has been laboring to teach them for now 11 chapters. Notice that his appeal is built on this foundation right here. This is the most important statement in this verse, by the mercies of God. Everything depends upon this rock-solid foundation. Everything flows out of this. All Christian living is grounded upon the mercies of God. That word there, I appeal to you, therefore, some have called this the pivot word in this great letter to the Romans. 
Everything now turns on this word, therefore. We know this uh, hermeneutically, Bible study-wise. Whenever we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what is it there for? And it reminds us that as we look back over 11 chapters that Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. That's what he's talking about. That's what he means when he says the mercies of God. Everything I've just explained to you about the gospel, I've been expounding the gospel, I've been explaining the gospel, I've been telling you about the depths and riches and wonders of the gospel, and it can almost be summed up so simply like this, the mercies of God. The gospel is God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners. That was chapters 1 through 3, where God shows that all humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, are guilty of rebelling against God, of rebelling against His authority, of failing to worship Him as God and honor Him as God. He's shown that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and as such are deserving of God's wrath. But then we've seen in these 11 chapters that in the giving of His Son, we can find the righteousness of God We can be justified, made right, just as if we've never sinned, just as if we've always obeyed. And he's unfolded that in beautiful ways in chapters 4 through 5. Through faith, like Abraham, we can be made right with God. And then in sending his life-giving spirit, he makes rebellious sinners into children of his own, his own people. And in chapters 6 through 8, that's what we saw, the spirit that transforms us, that frees us from the bondage and slavery to sin and empowers us now to live righteous lives in Christ Jesus, the spirit of God being our very security and assurance And what we learn, especially through chapters 1 through 8, is that our natural state, our natural human condition does not require mercy but judgment. That's what every sinner deserves. And yet, there has been this awesome, this great reversal where God, supposed to have given us His judgment, instead gives His judgment to His Son, who stands in our place as a perfect substitute. And instead, we receive mercy. And the key word of Romans 9 through 11, I'll give you one guess what that key word is. Mercy. Mercy. Just just listen to this. Romans 9, 16 says, For salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And His purpose is stated in Romans 9, 23, to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. More than that, in chapter 11, verse 30, it says this, Just as the disobedient Gentiles receive mercy, so too disobedient Israel now looks at the mercy shown to undeserving Gentiles, and they too now, listen to this, receive mercy. Romans eleven thirty-two: 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. And all of this, remember, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, all of this causes Paul to erupt in praise in this marvelous doxology 
It's so staggering to him that he declares in verse 33 of chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. But here's what I need you to see this morning. That as marvelous as this doxology is, this eruption of praise... It doesn't just stop here with a declaration from our mouths. What Paul wants to do now is show us how this idea of praise and bringing glory to God is now fleshed out in every single area of our lives. No area of our lives is untouched by the mercy and grace of God. All of it is an opportunity to display what has been so graciously given to us. And this comprehensive understanding of the gospel is foundational. For the Christian, you see, there is unity between theology, doxology, and conduct. You can think of these three words. This might be helpful for you to jot down just for your own reflection. The Christian is given doctrine that leads to doxology, out of which flows duty. Or maybe I can say it like this, the principles of our faith lead to praise of our faith, which leads to the practice of our faith. And you see, the greater our comprehension of what God has done for us, the greater our commitment to Him should be. The gospel of God, consider this, the gospel of God embraced meditated on, taken to heart, is a magnet drawing us to deeper commitment to Him. So our series title, Growing Deeper, here's how you need to think of this. Growing deeper equals growing deeper in our thinking, which inevitably leads to growing deeper in our living. It's the way God has designed the Christian life to work. That's what The great hymn writer Isaac Watts meant when he wrote these words, love so amazing, so divine, listen to this Christian, demands my soul, my life, my all. And here's what you need to understand just in this very first point. What Paul is doing here is is not making a suggestion. When he makes this appeal, he's not saying, hey, this is going to be a good idea for you. This is something you should really consider doing in your life. No, he's he's stating the Christian's duty and obligation. And this isn't supposed to be some kind of cold, mechanical obedience or obligation. This is an obligation and a duty that is fueled by the very grace of God. It's our obligation, in other words, to think about what Christ has done and to make our commitment accordingly to contemplate the cross and all that that entails, and then to commit ourselves to Him in His glory. I think there is scarcely anything more important for building our commitment than increasing 
an increasing comprehensive understanding of the greatness of God and his mercies that flow towards us through Christ. Through the gospel, God has mercifully transformed believers from enemies in rebellion against him into sons and daughters that are now reconciled and at peace with him. And in light of this transformation, the thinking and behavior of God's people must stand in stark contrast to the world in which we live our day-to-day lives. That's what Paul is going to begin to unfold in the remainder of the book of Romans. He's going to start talking about how our commitment to God, listen, is expressed in our commitment to other people, in our relationships, how we love one another, how we serve one another, how we honor those around us and in positions of authority. All of this matters deeply because it demonstrates our experience of the mercies of God, and it is also an expression of the mercies of God. And so what what Paul is giving us here is so critical for the Christian life. It impacts everything, which is why that commitment is next expressed in this wholehearted devotion. Wholehearted devotion has two prominent characteristics. And I want to point those out to you. I'll just tell you what they are, and then we'll unpack both of them. We'll spend the remainder of our time doing that. First, wholehearted devotion to the Lord is total. And secondly, it's reasonable. We'll get to what that means in a moment. Let's let's begin with the first one there. Notice this, a commitment that is total. That's what wholehearted devotion is. The totality of the commitment comes powerfully to us through the language of sacrifice. Notice what he says in the second half of this first verse. He says, to present your bodies as living living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To present or to offer ourselves is a, it's a technical term that's used for the ritual presentation of a sacrifice. So in other words, what Paul is doing here is he's using some built-in Old Testament imagery. He's wanting to kind of get our minds thinking a little bit about the sacrificial system and, and where that took place and what that meant and why it's now important to understand in light of the, the Christian's life. When he talks about here presenting your bodies, that idea of your bodies, here's what you need to see. It signifies more than just your skin and bones. This is more than just your your physical being. It, It is symbolizing the totality of who you are, every aspect of your being, your mind, your will, your emotions, and yes, your body and all of the actions. And when you think about what it means to be a Christian in presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, as a spiritual act of worship to the Lord, here's what you need to know. And if you don't know this already, you haven't been a Christian very long, but this doesn't happen automatically. This is something that requires a great degree of intentionality. This is something that is hard. This is something that we fail at so very often in our lives. It requires some serious commitment and some regular refreshing in commitment. You must, in other words, make a conscious decision 
a conscious decision where you stay, state to God, here I am, God, all of me for all of you. God, I am yours. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And this, by the way, is intended to be done not just at the moment you are saved. The verb that Paul uses here, the tense of the verb implies this is something that is to be ongoing, continuous in the Christian life. Notice again, the language here, we're to offer our bodies as a sacrifice, a sacrifice that is living, three things, living, holy, acceptable, or pleasing. That's how that word can be translated. But what exactly does this mean? How are we supposed to understand this idea of sacrifice? We're so far removed from a sacrificial system. Our context is so different So it's important that we we see how Paul is drawing us back into the Old Testament to consider this very sacrificial system and what it meant and what it was for. And what he's referring to here as he uses this language is really the, the temple priestly duties. There is no sacrificial system apart from the temple. These two things go hand in hand. But the question is this, why does he use this language? The simple answer is this, is because the imagery emphasizes the New Testament theology of our union with Christ, which is something that Paul has been teaching about all throughout, specifically Romans 6 all the way through 9. It's hard to understand this this concept in this metaphor without a little bit of background. So let me try and give you a bit of a high-level overview of why the, the sacrificial system and the temple itself were so important. The temple in the Old Testament was the place of worship because it was the place where God said His glory would dwell with His people. The presence of God was most greatly manifested in the holy of holies, in the center of the temple. And it's so important to understand how this idea and theology is really uh, expanded throughout the entirety of the Scriptures. People would come into the temple, and the sense was they were trying to draw near to God, and in order to do that, they had to deal with their sin. They had to worship God in the properly prescribed ways, And those things met and were married together in the sacrificial system. The sacrifice represented in the the purity of the animal, a way of their sins being temporarily dealt with and atoned for so that they could enjoy proximity and relationship with God. Sin had separated humanity from God's presence, from intimacy with Him. And so God had created a way for humanity to move back into that space of enjoying, at least in some form, His presence and the blessing of knowing Him in an intimate kind of way. But those sacrifices were mediated through a priesthood. In other words, those people weren't sacrificing on their own behalf. The priesthood would take those sacrifices and mediate that sacrifice for that, between them and the Lord. Throughout the scriptures, one of the things we see is that the temple or tabernacle, that theme unfolds and it shows us what it means that God wants to dwell with his people. You kind of think of the temple a little bit like this. You ever, some of you are old enough to remember this. You remember those toys? I used to love these when I was a kid, micro machines. Do they still have those? 
can't think Hot Wheels, if you can't think Micro Machines, it's just a smaller version of that. But I like the term Micro Machines. You, you remember that? Micro Machines is tiny little cars or vehicles or planes or boats, right? It's, it's basically a small version, a model of the real thing. And as a kid, you're like, well, I can't have the real thing yet. I'm not there yet. So I'll just enjoy this microcosm, this, this mini version of the real thing. Well, there's a sense in which the temple itself was a microcosm, the temple structure, the tabernacle. It's a microcosm, scholars argue, of the entire universe and specifically of the Garden of Eden. You see, when God created humanity, think about this, he intended to dwell with man on earth. You remember this? Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? What privilege did they enjoy? They walked in the presence of God in the garden. And there's this beautiful picture of intimacy and freedom in knowing the Lord and knowing his glory and all of that. Listen, it comes to a crashing halt when humanity sins. They're kicked out of the garden, no longer able to enjoy the presence of God the way they once did. And yet God doesn't leave humanity to their own devices entirely. The garden reminds us that the plan of God was always to dwell amongst his people. And so here comes this tabernacle idea. Remember the tabernacle? It's like a tent. And it moves around with the people of God as they they travel about the wilderness. It's this nomadic tent. And it's a perpetual reminder, listen, that where the tabernacle is, the presence of God is with his people. It's in a small, localized way with his people. But even to access that tent in the presence of God, only few people could do that. Not everybody had the same privilege of of marching into the presence of God, specifically not like Moses. Remember that? He, He met with God in such a personal and unique way. And then when the temple is built in the land, a permanent fixture in the land, which here's what you have to see, the whole point of that temple being put there in the land in a permanent way was a reminder that God always intended to dwell with his people. And it's so fascinating that this idea that the temple being a microcosm of, of the Garden of Eden, do you ever wonder why when the temple is described, I mean, I, I could go on about this, but it's, the, the gold is inlaid with, with vegetation. Did you ever go like, why, why are there palm trees engraved? Why are there pomegranates in there? It, it's a pointing back to the garden. Remember what was lost? We once lived in this lush garden, enjoyed the intimacy of God. God dwelt with man. And here we are in this temple, and it's pointing us back. But listen, it's also pointing us forward, reminding us of what's one day going to be the reality for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. And in the temple, they offered sacrifices. They worshiped God in the way that he had prescribed But it's incredible when you get to the New Testament. Think about this. Listen, the book of John tells us this, that Jesus comes on the scene, and in John chapter 1, it says that he tabernacled amongst his people. He dwelt among them. Listen, this is a very intentional link in the chain. Here is God. Listen, here is God in flesh who fulfills the the purpose of the temple. Here is God with his people. 
This is why he told them. Remember what he said? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will build it again. They looked at him thinking he's crazy. What was he talking about? His own body. He is the fulfillment. Listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the fulfillment of the priestly duties. He is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He is the fulfillment of it all. Just read through the book of Hebrews. And it's fascinating. In John chapter 4, do you remember Jesus has this conversation? He comes alongside the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember that? He comes alongside her and he begins to engage with her and they have this little uh, debate, so to speak. And, and she's a Samaritan, she's not a Jew. And so she says, you know, the Samaritans say that we, we worship God here on this mountain and the Jews say that only in Jerusalem on that mountain do you worship God. In other words, where the temple is, that's where you worship God. And do you remember what Jesus says to her? He says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. In other words, the time is now here because I am here. Where worship and the presence of God is no longer connected to a place, but to a person. And and in doing this, he is actually very subtly appealing to her to come and experience true worship by knowing this person himself, Jesus, God in flesh. And listen, by extension, here's what the New Testament teaches. There's no physical temple any longer. Guess why? Because you are the temple. And you want to know why you as a Christian are the temple? Because you're connected to Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus, the true fulfillment of all of that. You are now in him. And so now Peter says this. Let me put it on the the screen for you just so you see I'm not making any of this up. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the temple. To be a what? Notice this. A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's saying, isn't he, the exact same thing that Paul is saying. Because Jesus fulfilled all of this, and we know this theologically, church, don't we? We now are individually and corporately the temple of the living God. His spirit has been poured out in us. God dwells in us. Therefore, listen, wherever you go, worship follows you. It's not just about a a building It's not just about what we do on Sunday, but listen, that doesn't minimize. In fact, what we do, there there is a corporate expression of this that cannot be minimized. The New Testament emphasizes this. This isn't just about you personally being the temple. This is about us as living stones built up together as this holy temple, this house of the Lord where God dwells with his people. 
The place they used to go to worship is now right here, Jesus is saying. Wherever you go, you worship. Unceasing worship. And by the way, the fullness of this, if you want to draw this biblical theological thread from the Garden of Eden, guess what the book of Revelation teaches? In Revelation 21, 22, here's what it says. I saw, he's talking about this future. This is the new heavens and new earth. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There it is. Listen. The fullness, the fullest expression. Listen, we, we're t- when we sing the hymn of heaven, listen, like we just did, here's what you need to understand. We are actually tasting a piece of heaven right now as the people of God, as the temple of God. And the fullness will one day, listen, be realized where we stand in the very presence of Jesus. You see, we approach the Father not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. And we, this side of the cross, we no longer offer animals, but we offer ourselves. That's what he's getting at here. But unlike the Old Testament, listen, the sacrifice we now offer is not our death, but our wholehearted devotion of our lives for his glory. And let me just say, look, when we, when we obey, when we live this way for God's glory, we don't do this to obtain the favor of God. We do this because we have already obtained the favor of God. We are not trying to achieve God's love and acceptance. We've already received God's love and acceptance And as I say that, as I say those words, I know theologically, all of you Christians in here are like, yes, yes and amen. I agree with that. But here's the problem. We don't always live like that. We just don't. We slip into this place of trying to live by earning God's acceptance, trying to assuage our guilty conscience, thinking that, oh man, my sin, it's so bad. I just, if I start being a better person, maybe, maybe God will be happier with me and maybe I'll experience more of his blessing in my life. Maybe everything will change circumstantially. You see, we begin to live as if we're trying to achieve acceptance and love from God instead of living out of the reality that we've already received the acceptance and love of God. Let me say it like this. You are not supposed to live like you're paying God back for what he's done for you. Do you know that? It's a term um, that is often used, and I, I love it. It's, it's, it's this, that as Christians, we are debtors of grace. But you, you can wrongly understand that to mean that being a debtor of God's grace is to somehow think we have to repay God for his grace. So let me just get that out of your mind because to do that, listen, would be to degrace grace. It would be to strip it of all of its meaning and all of its importance. It would no longer be grace. No, to be a debtor of grace is to live out of the joy of grace. It is to live a life of gratitude because of grace. And you see what Paul is saying to us? Hear this, church. You have to hear this. I need to hear this this morning. I need to be refreshed with this just like you do. My heart wanders so easily, and I need to hear this. So so just listen so carefully. Listen, God is demanding from you the full energy of your life. 
the full living of your life for him and for his glory. I want you to notice that we're not only the temple, the building, but we're also a holy priesthood. That's what Peter said, and that's what Paul is implying. Again, what were priests supposed to do in the Old Testament? One of their functions, again, was to offer sacrifices. And this is why Peter says that we are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This, again, is exactly what Paul is communicating. We must, in other words, present our bodies, our whole beings, our will, our actions, our affections, our emotions... Every member physically, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, every part of us is to be offered up to God wholeheartedly, unreservedly, totally for Him and for His glory. Nothing, not one piece of us held back. And we are to offer ourselves to God as holy, consecrated, set apart. And we're supposed to offer to Him what is acceptable. See, what does that mean? It means what Paul has already communicated in Romans 6. It means that we do not give our lives over to sin, that we use our members as instruments of righteousness. We do not use our minds for sin, but for righteousness. We do not use our hands for sin, but for righteousness. We do not use our tongue for sin, but for righteousness. Everything for his righteousness. And I don't know about you, this is, this is good, right? Like, we, we need this. Fresh year. Listen, I, I don't know how you've been living. I don't know what you've been living for. I don't know what you've been using your, your, your mind for, your body for, your heart for, your hands for. I, just, I don't know what you've been using any of yourself for, but I know this. I know what God calls you to use it for. So whatever it is you've been leaning into, you've been giving yourself over to, whatever it is has been dominating the way you've been living, listen, this is the day. Today. Today is the day where you say, God, fresh start. Your mercy is new to me. I'd love to say this morning, but it's this afternoon. It's new to you this afternoon. It's fresh for you this afternoon. You don't got to keep living the way you were. That doesn't have to control your life. And you listen, this is so good. In the gospel, you don't have to live in the shame of where you've been. You simply have to come to the cross in repentance and re-embrace the gospel and freshly say, God, today I am yours. All of me for all of you. So good. And this commitment, secondly, is a commitment that is reasonable. That means that word means rational, reasonable. And that's the word here um, that that is translated probably in your Bible as spiritual. You may have a little note there. Um, By the way, you see a little number there. Uh, Mine's a number four. And if I drop down to the bottom of my Bible, here's what it says. Um, for spiritual worship, or your rational service. That is the better way to translate this word. This is the way it's normally translated in other parts of the New Testament. And the idea here is significant. When someone is unreasonable, we know this, they're generally or often irrational They're not logical in how they're operating. They're not making any sense. 
And, and just so you're aware, this is the very nature of sin, isn't it? Sin is the height of irrationality. It is the height of being unreasonable. Why? Because you choose to do something. You willingly choose to do something, believing it will bring you joy, happiness, satisfaction, believing it will bring you blessing, and it does the exact opposite. It's irrational. It's unreasonable. It makes no sense. And in defining the Christian life of worship to God, Paul says that our life of worship to God is a rational commitment. It is a reasonable commitment. And by the way, he's simply contrasting the life of a Christian worship with the unbeliever's life of worship that he's already laid out for us in Romans chapter 1. Let me say it like this. We were, as human beings, we were created to worship the Creator, but because of sin, we irrationally worship the creation. Can I say that again? You following along? This is, this is important. We were created to worship the Creator, but because of sin, we irrationally worship the creation. That's what Paul said in Romans 1, 18 through 25. It's like he just does a case study of humanity apart from God. And what he says is humanity is so dumb. They just worship dumb. I mean, they, they, they make idols. They make idols out of wood. Like they take half a piece of wood and they burn it to provide fuel and heat for their home. And they take the other piece and they make a God. And then they sit down and they bow to it as if that God is actually an authority over them. That is stupid. And I don't mean that like, listen... No, it is what it is. It is dumb. (laughs) There's no other way to put it. Look what Paul says in Romans 1, 23 through 25. Put it on the screen here. This is, he says, says, they exchanged. This this is the stupidity, the irrationality. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Watch this. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see what Paul's saying? This is so dumb. Unbelieving worship. And by the way, everybody worships something. And if it's not God, listen, it's dumb. It's unreasonable. It's irrational. It is the height of foolishness because it lands you, listen, in total and utter destruction and judgment. Everybody worships something. It is impossible not to because it is fundamental to human nature and humanity's greatest problem is messed up or disordered worship, irrational and unreasonable, the degauding of God for something so far lesser and insignificant. But the gospel addresses our disordered worship And it provides us, listen, with forgiveness and grace. Because listen, the truth is, is that even even with the Spirit of God dwelling within us, as John Calvin says, our hearts are are idol-making factories. We're constantly pulled away from worshiping the true and living God towards lesser things. 
The gospel comes along and it breathes new life back into us. It meets us in our sin and it breathes grace into our lives once again. It reorders our worship. It it reminds us and refreshes us and gives to us new life, new desires, new passions, new affections. Reorders them back to God himself. And the logical reality of the worship of the Christian is simply this. Listen, you want to know the simple, rational, reasonable logic of Christians' wholehearted worship, wholehearted devotion. It's so simple. We give all to him because he gave all for us. That's it. Which is why it's so unreasonable and illogical to only give part of ourselves to God. God, I'll give you my money, but I'm not going to give you my purity. God, I'll give you my mind, but I'm not going to give you my hands. God, I'll give you my Sunday, but not my Monday to Saturday. When God is asking for something from you, he is asking for something. Listen to this, Christian. He's asking for something that rightly belongs to him. He purchased you. He owns you. You were bought at a price, the infinitely valuable price of his own son. And so when God says he wants you, he doesn't want some of you, he wants all of you. And this is the constant call upon your life and mine. You know, I I used to have a pastor who used to say, I mentioned this years ago, um, he used to say Sunday morning begins Saturday night. In other words, you start getting your heart ready to worship the Lord on Saturday night. How you treat your Saturday night is going to impact your Sunday morning. And and years back, some of you may remember, I thought, you know, that's really good, but I actually think it's it's inadequate. Uh, And I I said this, I said Sunday morning begins Sunday afternoon. We've got to change that again. (laughs) Sunday afternoon begins Sunday evening. And you see, see the point is this, that there's, there's this cyclical nature to the reality of Christian worship. We, we come here, listen, this is so good. You can't undervalue and, and underestimate the importance of what we're doing here. This is life for our souls, amen? And this fuels us. Now listen, it fuels us to leave this place and to go out and live a life of worship throughout the week. And when we do that faithfully, guess what? When we get back around to Sunday, Our hearts are fueled by living a a life, a week of worship. So we get to be with God's people again and God's presence again collectively. And so our hearts are then again just fueled and it fuels the week and it fuels the Sunday and it fuels the week. And just this is the way it's supposed to be. I know it's not always the experience of the Christian. Please understand me. I know. But you see, when we fail to give God all of ourselves all the time, We run this risk of being so up and down in our Christian life, but when we learn, listen, this constant, I I love this, this constant obedience in the same direction, this faithfulness, this, this perseverance in our commitment to the Lord, I'm telling you, things begin to smooth out in the Christian life. You begin to grow and stay on a trajectory. Yes, you fall and you fail, but you're quick to repent, you're quick to be washed again with grace, and you're quick to renew your commitment to get back up. I'm like, God, you're so good. I'm running harder after you now. God, you're so faithful. I'm giving you myself again today, this moment, this hour. You see, we we love to start, but few of us are good at persevering. Isn't that true? 
We love the spark of a match. We're like, oh, that's cool. Tss, burns out. Ah. Just light another one. Flash in the pan. We like to light it over and over. It's the story of many of our Christian lives. We make those resolutions, and then within three days, gone. Well, there's always next year. Can I just say, enough with simply striking another match. Paul is saying light a candle. Tend to it daily. Let it keep burning. The thousand little decisions we make each day, committing ourselves to Jesus over and over, offering true worship, every part, every thought, every decision in the face of every temptation, the wholehearted devotion that is a commitment to God, and it's so reasonable in light of what God has done for you. So why are you not giving yourself to God? Maybe you're asking, why am I not giving myself to God? Here's the deal. You have no good reason, and neither do I if you're in Christ. You may have a reason this morning, but I'm telling you right now, it's bad. Let me just emphasize this again. This is, by the way, not just personal commitment and devotion. This is corporate, us together. Which is, again, why the rest of the chapter and the ones that follow describe this worship in the context of relationships, how we love and serve one another. One author says it like this, life as a living sacrifice ultimately means that we focus our entire lives to the service of Christ and His church. We're not just isolated individuals, but a people brought together into a family. We are brothers and sisters. And the way we worship God is ultimately in many ways expressed in how we treat one another. But all too often, listen, all too often, we gear our lives around so many other lesser things. We, we gear our lives around our careers or hobbies or sports and anything like that. You know, we gain reputations of devotion to these things. People know exactly where they could find us on the weekend, at work, at the golf course, in the garage, at our kids' sporting event. And just so we're clear, we're not committing sin when we engage in things like this, so don't hear that, but how much thought and time do we give these activities in comparison with our service to the Lord and His bride, the church? Do we have a reputation of tireless service to the church or for other things? Again, the same author said this, if Paul's words mean anything above all else, we should desire to serve Christ in his church. This must be the focus of our energy, work, and life. And, and loved ones, listen, if Christ is not our top priority, our greatest ambition, then we should pray that he would grant us the proper perspective so that we would pursue the life of discipleship, life as a living sacrifice. A life of worship to the Lord requires comprehensive understanding that should lead to, the, to wholehearted devotion. It is a commitment that is total and a commitment that is reasonable. God wants you to see that He gave all for you, and now God demands all of you. So what should I do? Well, I want to invite you to make this commitment with me today. I want you to commit today to giving all of yourself 
in a fresh way to the Lord. So as, as Mark and the team come out, we're going to get ready, we're going to sing, but I want to set this up for us so this is done maybe in a more helpful way for us as we close our time together. We're, we're going to sing a hymn, a great hymn of the faith, I'm called Take My Life. Many of you know it, for some of you, maybe this is going to be new, but the words are easy enough, and I hope you see how uh, linked they are to the passage of Scripture we've been looking at this morning. So here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. I want to suggest um, that you sing this hymn of the faith as both a prayer, but also a genuine declaration of your desire today for the Lord. For this year, a declaration of your commitment to God for this day, this year, and, and, and more than that, for the rest of your life. Uh, to give your life to God fresh and to watch God use your life to bring Him great glory now and into eternity. So let's stand together and by the grace of God, let's sing this from the depth of our soul. <laughs>